0: Okay, well, as I said, we are at the end of this series that we've called Great Expectations. It's a series that was tied to the building campaign, but really, it's more importantly that it's tied to us. It's tied to us being the church. Something I have given my uh, life up for, something I have given my career away for, Um, I've given it. To the church, And I'm asking you to think about giving yours to it. Now, that might not sound that enticing. You might say, how could I give my life to the church? That doesn't sound very fun or very fulfilling. But my premise and underlying presence here is we don't understand the church. Because if you understood the opportunity that is available to you to be part of what God is doing, it, 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 would, be, it would take your breath away. So we've been looking at what the church was meant to be. And most of it's outlined in the book of Acts. Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Luke was a physician by trade. He was a very smart guy. And the way God used him in the scriptures was to write very detailed accounts, almost historical documents of what was going on. So you might be familiar with the gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John. And so Luke wrote the book Luke. This same Luke, this same doctor, wrote this this book called Acts. But he wasn't writing a book. He was writing a letter to a guy named Theophilus that he was trying to convince of the historical accuracy of Jesus and his early church. And so that's what we've been looking at is Luke's firsthand investigative letter to Theophilus about this church. And if this letter that Luke wrote proves anything about the early church, it's this. Jesus was 100% right when he said, I am going to build my church on the testimony of Peter, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. If you remember, what was was Peter's testimony? Peter's testimony was in response to a question Jesus asked. He said to him, Who do you say I am? And Peter's answer was essentially, You know what? Some people say you're a prophet. Some people say you're a wise teacher. Some people say you're Elijah come back. You know who I think you are? I'm paraphrasing. I think you're exactly who you said you are. I think you're I think you're the son of God. I think you're the Messiah. And Jesus says to Peter, it's just on that kind of witness, Peter, that I'm going to build this church. The word he used there is ecclesia, gathering. I'm going to build a gathering of people on that kind of testimony, and the gates of hell will not be able to prevail against that gathering. And so for the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the components of that ecclesia, of that gathering. What made it so powerful? And my plea to you is, is this. Please understand that what Jesus is up to today... Is so big and huge, and you're invited into it. it. What Jesus is doing today is the same thing he's been doing for 2,000 years. Jesus is not reclining on a bed of uh, clouds in the heavens, eating grapes, listening to, you know, uh, hymns and, 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 and harp music. Jesus is doing the exact same thing today that he's been doing for 2,000 years. He is building his church. He's not building a denomination. He's not building a liturgy. He's not putting together church services. He's not building buildings Jesus is building a gathering of people who are completely sold out to this, to who he is, empowered supernaturally by the Spirit of God, and sent out to make him known. And so what what I think we've seen, if anything, is if if we could kind of strip away, deprioritize some of the things that have become such a priority to the church, like politics and money and buildings and hierarchy and and we could return to our roots, then we, we wouldn't just be able to raise our expectations for what God might do in and through us with our lives, but we'd have to raise our expectations. You would start to go, oh my gosh, all things really are possible. See, if you look at the book of Acts and you don't just look at it as a religious book, you read it as a historical document that Luke was writing to Theophilus, this thing reads like an action novel. It's crazy what's going on in here. Supernatural things are happening. It's a very real life and death battle that's taking place. The disciples, their lives, their church, it had meaning, it had purpose. The church, as it was established, it was life-giving, it was life-altering. At times it was even life-threatening, but it's powerful and it was purposeful and it was poignant and it was alive. And instead of going to college and becoming engineers and doctors and scientists, if we understood it correctly, you'd say there is nothing worth giving my life to more than that movement, than that church. Unfortunately, very few people would describe it that way today. It's seen as the white building on the corner that does does, does an hour service on Sundays. Now, if you've been here, the most famous description of what this community of people looked like is recorded in the second chapter of Acts, right after God does the miraculous. He pours out his spirit on people. Jesus had ascended into heaven. He had gathered about 120, the remnant of followers that were still there, still believing. He ascends into heaven and he sends them out. He says, you're going to be my witnesses And they walk down the hill together and they look at each other and they say, Well, we don't really know what that means. We don't know how we're going to reach the whole world like he said he was. Here's the only thing we know we're all in this together. And so they're meeting in Jerusalem one day and it's during the the celebration of Pentecost and there's people in from all over the world, the known world at that time. and, And God, on this people that have given their lives away, that are totally unified, he pours out his spirit on them. He does something miraculous. I know it's hard to read the Bible sometimes and you say, well, I'm not sure this could be true. But as I said last week, you realize you're floating on a ball, circling a fireball out in the middle of space. So God does do miracles. You just get used to them. And so... God does something crazy. He pours out his spirit on these 120 people, and suddenly they're able to speak the same language as all these people because they were going to be witnesses to the whole world. They didn't understand it. But suddenly they're able to speak the language of the whole world, and they pour out into the streets, and they start doing what? They do just what Jesus said they were going to be. They start witnessing about who Jesus was. You know that Jesus that was crucified here two months ago? We saw him. He's back to life. You know what they said? They said the same thing that Peter said. You know that Jesus? He really was who he said he was. He really did come back to life. He really is alive. Maybe all things are possible. And so uh, after that, after after this miraculous thing, the the church, it goes from 120 people to 3,000 people in a day. And there's power there. And there's a community being built like no community that's ever existed before. Here, here's what, how they described it in Acts 2.42-47. to 47. It says these 3,120 people, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Devoted themselves to it. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everybody was filled with awe at the wonders and the signs that were being performed by the apostles. God is pouring out His Spirit. Things are crazy are going on. All the believers are together. They had everything in common. This is why, for me, like, it's not about a money thing. It's about have, doing this together. They sold their property and their possessions. They gave it to anybody who had need. And every day, because they were devoted to each other, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They went to church, and they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, and they praised God, and they enjoyed, believe this or not, the church enjoyed favor with people outside of the church. They liked them. And as a result, the Lord was adding daily to those who were being saved. But... I mean, this, this was setting set Jerusalem on fire, this little movement, the way, they, the way they dealt with one another, the way they loved radically, the way they gave them themselves fully and wholly. But something happened, because this church was viewed from outside of the walls as something that was worthy of laying my stuff aside and pressing into. I want to be with those people. They live so differently. It looks so much better than what, I'm ha- what I have right now. I think I'd like to be part of that. But something has happened, and we're not viewed that way. Can we be honest? We're not viewed that way by the, the people outside the walls of the church. Would you like me to show you why? Um, Dina was going to pop up here. Um, we're going to do a little search here. So, now delete that, Dina, because we're not going to get there yet. Well, too late now, but if we were Acts 2.42, what would the community be saying? If I googled Christians are, what would the community say we are? Radically loving, completely inclusive, People that just were giving like crazy. Oh, they're the most wonderful, healing, forgiving. Oh, these people, I've never seen it. I don't really believe what they believe, but man, they believe it. They're, t- they're, they're just incredible people. This is access. This is the worldwide web. Christians are hypocrites, stupid, evil, idiots, You know, if you were in the day, you might think to yourself, you know, I wonder why these Christians are so radically giving, so radically inclusive, so radically dedicated to their purpose, so incredible forgiving and loving. So, you know, maybe in the day you'd Google, why are Christians, I don't know if you feel that, but that hurts my heart. That's the church. That was supposed to be. That was supposed to be salt and light. I was supposed to be the bride of Jesus. And somehow, that's what happened. It's not a place of love and hope and peace and hospitality a lot. People aren't pressing, pressing to get in or to join this gathering Because there was a time when people lived so beautifully and wonderfully and counterculturally together, but oftentimes it's not that way anymore. We have one big reputation on the street. You know, if I went to the Green of Mars and I held out a microphone, I'd say, um, let me ask you a question about Christians. Um, What what one word would you use to, to describe Christians? Christians are so, what would be the one word that would come back? Hypocritical. Pops up the minute you type Christians in. And see, hi- hypocritical, the word, the word from which it comes, it essentially means they're, they're like actors on a stage. They say one thing, but they do another. And if there's anything, if you don't get any point out of today, get this point. If there's anything that is more dangerous to this church, to this movement of this gathering of people, it is hypocritical witnesses of Jesus. If anything is going to derail a church... The number one thing that derails churches inside and outside is hypocrisy. That is powerfully proved, but what I think is the most controversial story in the New Testament. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably have never heard this story because nobody talks about it. It's like the best kept secret because we don't know what to do with this story. It bothers us. Nobody preaches about it. But I got to share it with you. We've been talking about the way this church was. It was so incredible. It was so selfless and giving. And so I just read you Acts two forty two. Well, well, God keeps adding to their number. In another day, it says that five thousand people are now in the church. And they actually said it was just men. So there's probably ten to fifteen thousand people. And now it's gaining momentum. People are starting to really press into it, right? And so here's, what did they do? Well, when they were 120, they were all in it together. And when they were 3,000, they were all in it together. And when it became 10 to 15,000, here, Acts 4, verses 32 to 37, same thing, the same spirit of generosity. All the believers were one in heart and mind. Nobody claimed any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything that they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify. See, two things, great power. God pours out his spirit and his power on churches like this, and they continue to do what they're supposed to do, testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Tell people that Jesus is who he said he is. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, and there was no needy person among them. And from time to time, those who owned land or houses, they sold them, and they bought the money from the sale, and they put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anybody who had need. In fact, Joseph a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostle called Barnabas, he sold a field he owned and he bought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. And see, this is the peak of the early church. 10, 15,000 people all loving on each other radically. Everybody in town going, I'm not sure I buy what they're talking about. I'm not sure I'm buying what they're selling, but there's something about the way those people live together and love one another. What's the first threat to the early church? The very next verse. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. And with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself. But he bought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then Peter said, it's the first time this is happening. He said, Ananias, so unusual for this community. It's such an outlying thing. Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept for yourself some of the money you you received for the land? I mean, didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? I mean, what made you think of doing such a thing? You haven't just lied to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and he died. And great fear seized all who had heard what, what had happened. And then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and they carried him out and buried him. And about three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price that you and Ananias got for the land? Is this all the money? And she said, yes, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? And in what are pretty spooky words, listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they're going to carry you out also. And at that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her late husband. And as you would imagine, great fear seized the whole church and all of those who heard about these events. Now, I ask you, is there any greater story to preach when you're trying to convince people to give money to a building campaign <laughs> than the story of Ann and, and Iris? Be very careful with those pledge cards, men and mills. Be very, very Careful, Amen. Now, see, this story actually isn't about money at all. There's nothing to do with money. Anybody that told you it had something to do with money, they missed the point. It it, it really doesn't have to do with behavior. Maybe a little. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a little bit of a lying issue going on here. But you know, we all lie. So you know, God's not striking dead everybody who lies. In fact. Listen, you need to understand, it's not about money. This is Jesus who said, it was his words that said, everybody gives what they've decided in their heart to give. Not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So God is not striking people dead because they're not giving enough money. You know what this story is? At its heart, this is a story about hypocrisy. And the very real danger that it is to the church It's a story of and the warning over what happens inside the church that can ruin and destroy community within it and the witness outside of it. This story doesn't say that Ananias and Sapphira weren't believers. The story doesn't say that Ananias and Sapphira went to hell. I don't think they did. I think they went to heaven to be with Jesus. I don't even see their death as a punishment necessarily for their sins. Now remember, here's why. Remember all the miraculous things that God was doing through the, through the um, apostles and disciples in Jerusalem? He was, he was healing people. Um, the, the people were bringing uh, the people from the town in and, and just to get close to Peter. Why? Remember last week we talked about Peter and John went into the temple and they, made a, they healed a crippled guy. Why was God giving all that power to the early church to do all those miraculous things? As a sign about who he was and what his power was. This was God showing his people something, proving who he was through that. The guy that, that in the temple that he stood up, you know, that guy died years later. You know, all those people that they were bringing to those disciples, uh, or to the disciples, all the people that Peter's shadow was being cast over that, that were being healed, you realize they got sick again later. Have you met anybody from first century Jerusalem cruising around going, yeah, I just can't die? Right? The reason God was giving that power, the reason that God continues to do often things like this, is not, we're all under the penalty of sin and death. We're all dying. But God was giving a sign to his people to show them something. Why did Ananias and Sapphira die on the spot? Remember remember it. Death was under punishment just reserved for them. We're all dying. We're all under that punishment. It comes and gets us sooner or later. Why did God take Ananias and Sapphira on the spot? My tension would be that it was a sign. No different than the miracles in the streets of Jerusalem was. It was a sign to the church that nothing, nothing will mess this gathering up its beauty and its wonder and its power and its unity and its witness. Nothing will ruin its purpose like hypocrisy be on the watch for it it's really dangerous and two thousand years later on something called yahoo on the world wide web in a way that they could never understand we gather today and we look at it and you put christian the word christian in the first thing that pops up are hypocrites it's the most dangerous thing to faces is the church It was, in a very real sense, if you think about hypocrisy that crucified Jesus, the religious leaders of the day. Jesus said, you're hypocrites. He used that word. He said, you religious people, you're hypocrites. He said, you behave one way. On the outside, he goes, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You look beautiful. But on the inside, there's nothing there but death and rotting bones. It was Jesus who again said, woe to you teachers, you teachers of the law, you Pharisees, you religious people, you hypocrites, he said, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. So if there was anything that Jesus would not want his church to be about, if there was anything he was going to give them a sign about to say, do not do this, be on guard for this, it's hypocrisy. Yet, sadly, disappointingly, almost for me, tear-jerkingly, that's what it became about. How does that happen? Here's my quick take on it. You see, when the church is going right, well, people are fueled by its potential and its purpose, when their eyes were outward, when, 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 when their focus is outside of the walls of the church, on being what Jesus called the church to be, witnesses to all of Jerusalem, witnesses to Samaria, they didn't even like the Samaritans, witnesses to people around the world, when that's the focus and purpose, and people are all in and they're sharing their stuff and they're united and they're walking together, in those communities, God moves very powerfully. Love flows and people share and prayers are bold and people are drawn in. People start to go, man, I want to be part of that. But there is, in every church that's ever existed, a very natural progression that starts, it starts with a purpose, but usually and oftentimes very quickly something happens and focus wanes. Instead of being a force that sets captives free from from behind the gates of hell, the church turns inward on itself and begins to look outside of the walls. And in looking outside of the walls, it it begins to fear what's going on out there and shame those who are outside of the walls. Instead of being a witness... Listen to this. Instead of being a witness to the life and death and the resurrection of a God who comes for people, a man known as a friend to prostitutes and a tax collectors, a God who went to their home and ate with them, instead of being witnesses of a Savior who, by his very own, own words, came for, for the sick, not the healthy, instead, what the church does oftentimes quickly is to lock those same people out the people that Jesus ate with and drank with, the church tends to look at them and shame them. And the church somehow somehow becomes, it thinks its greatest act is moral policeman. Instead of preaching good news about a God who loves and accepts sinners, we begin to preach the same old bad news about people needing to clean themselves up, to come to God. And then you know what happens? We start judging people. And judgmentalism creeps in, and you know what happens when judgmentalism creeps in? Then we even we can't keep our own standards that we start putting on other people, and then you know what they do? They look at us and they say, "You know what you guys are? You're a bunch of hypocrites." It happens quickly, and it destroys churches. Now, I showed you this a couple of years ago, but this teaching has been so profound for me. I, it rolls through my head all the time. I was just sharing it with another teacher recently, and he, he's like, I've got I to share this with my, my church. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, we haven't even gotten to his story Acts yet, right? He starts a church in Rome. And you know, you know what happens with churches, don't you? If they lose their purpose and they lose their mission, they start to turn inward, and they start to judge the people outside. They start to condemn the people outside. So Paul writes a letter to this church in Rome, and he almost, I, I almost feel as if Paul's writing this and baiting and switching them. He's getting them fired up. He's telling them, in a sense, I'm with you on this. Watch. He says in, in the first chapter of Romans, he goes, Furthermore, he says, just as they didn't think it was worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do, they do what ought not to be done. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness and evil and greed and depravity. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They are gossip. Oh, man, those people out there are bad. They're gossips. They're- do you know what they do out there? They're gossips and slanders. They're God haters. They're insolent. They're arrogant. They're boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. That's how bad they are. They disobey their parents. That somehow doesn't seem that bad compared to the rest of them. They have no understanding, they have no fidelity, they have no love, they have no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do those very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Oh, they're bad! Now, does that sound at all like the early church? That doesn't sound like the kind of people that others would be pressing to get in with. And so Paul, in his brilliance, he just immediately flips... And so here he comes, without skipping a beat, next verse. You, therefore, notice the they becomes you. You, therefore, have no excuse. You who pass judgment on someone else, for whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment on them do all those same bad things. And we know that God's judgment against those who do such things, his judgment is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you're going to escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt? Here's the early church. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness and his forbearance and his patience? The message of the early church was about God's kindness and his, message, and his patience and his forbearance. I'm not, I'm not making light of sin here. Please don't hear that. Jesus died for sin because we're all broken. But we're broken in here and we're broken out there together. This is how Paul concludes this. Because this is, that Romans 1, that's oftentimes that when people want to make the church the moral police, they say, well, take out Romans. Look here what it says in Romans. They're they're this, they're that, they're this, they're that, they're this. And so we need to tell them that they're all going to hell. We need to threaten them. We need to make sure they're scared of God. And Paul says this in Romans 2, 4b, Don't you realize that it's God's kindness Not his anger, not his punishment, not his judgment. It is his kindness expressed by his people that is intended to lead you to repentance. You're agents of that kindness. And so Ananias and Sapphira, in a sign for the ages about the danger of hypocrisy, after their death, you'd have to imagine everybody is scared you know how. Right? Imagine if I when Joan imagine if when Joan put that that pledge card in there five minutes ago, she had dropped dead on the spot. First thing we know is I would have said, I told you to put more money in that thing, Joan. But the rest of us would go, uh oh, uh, oh, uh. Oh. I'm now I'm scared. Now imagine if you were on the street, you weren't even part of this, you'd start to go, I'm not even sure, I don't know what's going on in there. But that's scary. Here's what happens. The the story continues. This is the the very next verse. After Ananias and Sapphira are taken out. The apostles perform many signs and wonders among the people. Hypocrisy gone. Spirit of God starts to dwell again. Miracles start happening. All the believers used to meet together in Solomon's Colonnade. They're still meeting together all the time. No one else dared to join them. Of course not. They're scared to death, right? Even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, even though people dropped dead. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. The community was so enticing that even people dying in the streets wasn't enough to keep people out. And that's the church. That's what the church was supposed to be. Not some lame, limp, benign, boring hour on Sunday morning, but a force so powerful, a gathering so wonderful, that even in the face of people dying, even in their wake, people were so attracted to it they couldn't stop coming in. And so, guys, if there's anything we want to be, it's that kind of attractive community. If there's anything we want to avoid, it's being hypocrites. It's waving our finger at people while we do the same thing. So how do we do that in Mendham in Chester, New Jersey in 2015? How do we become the kind of community that people aren't looking at and going, yeah, they're just like all the rest. They're judgmental. They're hypocritical. I'm going to give you one word and I'm going to ask you to express it in four ways. Remember when we were here a couple weeks ago, I showed you the first prayer of the church? First prayer of the the early church, the embryonic church. They're being persecuted. They're on the run. Um, Peter Peter and John have been locked up and they meet up with the disciples. Their backs are probably filleted open from, from a beating. And what do they pray for? They say, God, you've heard their threats. You've heard what they said they're going to do to us if we keep doing this. And they say, so Lord, would you give us boldness? That was their prayer. And it's not just there. Paul, who's gone through hell and back by the end of this book, he's been shipwrecked, he's been abandoned, and he's on his way to being killed. You know how the book ends? It ends with Paul in a rented house. And it says this in Acts 28, the last, last couple of verses. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. That's why you're here today, because somebody listened. For two years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God, and he taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So I just... We're wrapping this series up. This is the end of the early church portion of this. I just want to encourage you. This is just personal. Me asking you to join me, to hold me accountable, to encourage me and, and, and the elders and the staff to walk with us, to, to embolden us, to, to push us, to be bold. To be bold, not just settle for church as it's known, but to, to create the kind of place that, that is worth pouring your life into. And to do that, I just want to ask you to, to bring boldness in four areas. And it's the four things we saw in the early church last week that characterized the early church. The first is, I'm going to ask you, write it down if you have, if you can, I'm going to ask you to be bold in prayer. To be bold in prayer. Now, a friend of mine said last week, you know, he's... He, He said to me, you know, you got to be careful that people don't think you're dismissing their prayers. Because, you know, I said some things. In fact, it was funny. I was uh, was at a a funeral uh, the other day, and somebody asked me, John, could you come up and bless the food because we were about to eat? And somebody that goes to mend whispered in my ear, tell them it's too late for the food. If you remember that joke from a couple weeks ago. But, you know, we pray these safe prayers, and those prayers are good, right? Like, Lord, thank you for the day. That's good. You should thank God for the day. Lord, keep us safe, and and Lord, you know, help my Aunt Tilly's hip. And yes, God wants us to pray for all those things. But God is offering you the ability to pray for something that is so radical and beyond what you could possibly understand. When's the last time you prayed big, bold, scary prayers? You ever find that sometimes we need to, like, hedge our bets on God? Like, oh, God, if it be your will. Why do you say that? Well, in case it doesn't happen, I want to make sure I'm not disappointed or I don't disappoint you. You know, God really doesn't need you to hedge, you know, protect him. He's perfectly capable of protecting himself. And of course we want it to be God's will. But I'm asking you to start to pray boldly. Two weeks ago, we we prayed that prayer. We all stood and prayed that prayer. And the next week, a woman that goes to our church came in and she goes, John, I prayed that prayer. I got up, I walked out of the church. I went to one of my kids' events. The first person I walk into walks up to me and starts telling me all this stuff that's going on in our life. And I immediately heard in in my head, oh, no. Like, talk to her about God. Be bold. And she was. So I told her all about our church, invited her into the community, I think she's going to come next week. So you might be here today. Be bold about your prayers. Become what the church, you, become what you were created for. You realize you weren't created just to, to, to get a condo in Del Boca Vista phase two, right? Like, that's not the end. Be bold about God, what God might use your life for. Be bold in your prayers. The second thing I'm going to ask you to be bold about. Be bold in the way you care for one another. Now, what do, I mean, what do I mean by care? Be bold in prayer. Be bold in care. First thing is, I mean, we care for one another. We take care of each other. We bear one another's burdens. We're pretty good at this in our church. I mean, if somebody needs a ride, you give them a ride. If somebody needs a meal, we bring a meal. If somebody's sick, we pay a visit. In our church, it's usually done through our small groups. You know, groups take care of one another. That's the best way we can really show each other how we love each other. We're pretty good at this. We're not perfect. But can I give you the second part of care? Here's here's the second part that's even more important. It's the loving and forgiving of one another. Would you commit yourself to create an environment that we could live in together where we don't gossip about one another, where we don't slander one another, where we don't write one another off, where we have patience with one another, where we believe the best of one another, That's why I read you, that's what Paul wrote to that church in Corinth that I read this morning before we prayed, all about love. Here's the best way you can tell if you're operating that way. Here's what I see in the church all the time. First of all, I went to a meeting the other night. It was a town meeting for some sports, and I was asked to go because somebody wanted me to go, and I went to the meeting, and I couldn't believe what went on in that meeting. Most of the meetings I go to are church-related meetings, so at least we put on airs of loving one another. There wasn't even a thought in the room about loving one another. It was just, I couldn't believe it. Like, if I had driven myself there, I literally would have gotten up and left, because I didn't want to be part of it. I've never seen anything like it. We don't do that in the church. You know what we do in the church? When somebody bothers us, offends us, says something we didn't agree with, makes us mad, you know what we do? We pick up our ball, and we go home. We change small groups. We change, uh, we change uh, Sunday school classes. We change churches. I don't like what happened there. I don't like what he said. I don't like how she treated me. Did you see the way he looked at me from across the room? And see, that's the kind of, that's not not the church. See, that's out there. That's no different. There's nothing attractive about that. Nobody's pressing to get into that. If I want that, I'll go back to that sports meeting. So please, every time you think about checking out, ask yourself, am I picking up my ball and going home? Third thing, I'm going to ask you to be bold in your sharing. Bold in your witnessing right? Be bold in giving yourself to inviting people into this kind of community when it's functioning right. There's people that you've thought about inviting to this. You have neighbors and friends. Keep inviting them. Pray bold prayers for them. Keep asking. We had one of the meetings, two, two weeks ago, we had that meeting, and people were asking about the 92,962. And one woman said to me, how are you going to reach 92,962 people that live within one town of our church that, that, that don't know God? And I said, I said, well, we're going to try to do lots of things, but I'm going to tell you the number one thing we're going to do is, you've got to invite your friend. You have to invite your friend. The number one evangelistic tool we have is you. Be bold in your inviting. Don't stop inviting people into the community. Believe in the power of the church and the glory of the bride. Now, we're going to try to do things here to help you out. We had a children's outreach the other night, right? We showed a movie in here, and 50, 60 kids showed up, and a lot of you bought neighbor's kids. That's awesome. Steve Fisher, you know what he does for his youth group? Every first Sunday night, he fills the room with tables, and they have what they call First Sunday, and kids are told to bring their friends. And they share a meal together and they do some fun stuff. And Steve keeps it kind of light purposely that night so that the kids will, it won't, be, it won't feel too awkward inviting their friends to it purposefully trying to do that. We're going to keep trying to do it at the, at the bigger church level. This is why we run trips to Guatemala, because your friend might you might say, well, I don't know if he's going to come to church. Well, maybe he'll go serve the poor in Guatemala. Maybe he'll go serve the poor in Pine Ridge. Maybe he'll come serve the poor at Grace House guests. Keep inviting. Be bold in your inviting. Believe in the purpose and the cause. This isn't about going to church for an hour. We're going to keep trying to do the things we're doing. We're going to keep trying to do crazy things like having Jim Brewer on Christmas Eve. 1,100 people came to that. There's still people here. Just talking to somebody after their service said, I bought two people that I'm still talking to. I'm still wooing them towards God. Be bold in your witness. That's part of the sharing concept. Be bold in your volunteering here. Listen, I know you're busy. I'm really busy, too. We're all busy. I, I know that. We're busy. But when you pulled in this morning, you walked through that door, you know who greeted you? A very busy person. You know who made you coffee this morning? A very busy person. I'll give my wife props. My wife has four kids. She goes to school part-time. She has a full-time job, and she's running the coffee ministry. She's very busy. You know who's teaching your children about Jesus upstairs right now? Very busy people. You know who's who's running the sound in the back and the lights? Very busy people. You know who's going to count up all the offering and, and make sure all the books get taken care of this afternoon? Very busy people. Be bold in joining in, all in it together, sharing everything in common. And the last is, we've talked about it a lot, and and you're not going to hear me talk about this again for a while, but be bold in giving. Be bold in giving. Not just the great expectations thing. That wraps up today. But be bold in giving. You know, the church used to be really good about teaching people that, that they should give a regular percentage of their income to the church. And a lot of times we step away from that because we're, we're afraid of offending people. But if you're not giving a regular percentage of your income to the church, you should really start. Scripture is fairly clear about that. And see, why? Because this fends off hypocrisy. Because we're, what's the Bible talk about with treasures and hearts? You see, you can't be outside on the street telling everybody how much you love God and the thing, you know, having no impact on your checkbook. So you really should, if you're not in the habit of regularly giving a percentage of your income to the church, I'd encourage you to do that. I mean, if you're a Christian, you're, you're, now this is not for you, if you're visiting today, or you don't say you're a Christian, this is not for you, man. You just need to come and enjoy and hear about God. But if you're in this, and you're like throwing a 20 in the plate every couple of weeks, I mean, your kid is eating more food at Steve's first supper than that 20 bought, you know? Like, be bold in your giving to it. And lastly, be bold in being there. Commit to the meeting. Don't give up on the meeting. I know you're tired on Sunday morning. I know you could could eat bagels and read the New York Times. I know Meet the Press is on. I get it. But it matters that we're here together, that we encourage one another. Just our presence matters. I talked about it last week. Be bold in getting into small groups. If your small group stinks, go get another one. Right? Go get in another one. Be bold in your discipleship. If you're not growing towards God, our community, you know, in a sense if you're not growing towards God, our community is always only as strong as our weakest weakest point. Be bold in your discipleship. Be bold in in your spirituality. I'm going to close with this. Why does it matter? See, you might think, you might be so tired of church. You might be saying, it's just a building on the corner. It's an hour once a week. You're so close to it. You were raised in it. You were raised by the teachings of Jesus. And so it just has lost a little bit of its luster and its power. And when I say, man, this is going to be something that you could give your life to. This is greater than any other thing you could invest your time and your money and your effort into. You might go, John, that's hogwash. But maybe if you saw it from the, uh, through the eyes of an outsider, you might think differently. It matters. The church matters so much because there's no government program or social justice initiative. There's no educational system that can do what the church can do. None of these things change hearts. None of them change attorneys. Laws and edicts are good, right? We're always trying to change the laws. That's not bad. Powers and politics, sure, they have potential for good. But nothing is the power of the church if we get it right. Don't lower your expectations for this. Now, let us close with this incredible story. There's a guy named David Aikman. You might have heard of him. He's a very famous guy. He's a famous journalist and, and best selling author, and he's a foreign policy consultant. Aikman graduated from, from Oxford University. He's got a PhD from the University of Washington in Russian and Chinese history. Maybe he's most famous, and if you Google him, you can Google him on your phone right now. He's a very famous guy. Uh, for working as a journalist for Time Magazine from 1971 to 1994, during which he reported on nearly all the major historical events of the time. He's interviewed every major world figure, including Mother Teresa, Boris Yeltsin, Billy Graham. You name it, he's been there, he's done that. For many of his years at Time, Aikman was the bureau chief in in, in Beijing, China, for Time Magazine. And as as a result of being that bureau chief, he had access to all kinds of Chinese and Communist Party officials, In his book called What's Good About God, Philip Yancey quotes this very famous journalist on what he found in communist China in his years there relative to the church that you and I often don't think really has any power. And this is what he said. Aikman records a statement from a Chinese social scientist indoctrinated in Maoism who had carefully studied the West. And here's what this individual said. Chinese... Uh, Chinese um, social scientist, one of the smartest guys in China. One of the things we were asked to look into is what accounted for the success, in fact, the preeminence of the West over all the world. You see, China wanted to become like the U.S. 20 years ago. They wanted to have our riches. They wanted to have our economy. They wanted to have our levels of employment. And so they gathered up all their, their smartest guys, and they said, go figure out what they're doing so we can copy it. One of the things we were asked is to look into this, right? So what did we do? We studied everything we could from the historical to the political. We studied the economic and the cultural perspectives. At first, we thought it was because you had more powerful guns than we had. And that's what we always think first, right? Darwinism, we talked about it last week. Might makes right. Of course, America is so dominant because they're so much stronger than every other country. Then we thought it was because you had the best political system. Well, maybe it's democracy that's the answer. Next, we focused on your economic system. Well, maybe it's capitalism that's the answer. But in the past 20 years, we realized that the heart of your culture is your religion, Christianity. That is why the West has been so powerful. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life, that's the early church. It's the residue of what the early church taught us. The Christian moral foundation of social and cultural life was what made possible the emergence of capitalism. Remember, capitalism without Christianity is just Darwinism. It's just I get more, you get less. And they're looking at us going, how did this work in your country? The emergence of capitalism made possible by Christianity and then a successful transition to democratic politics. We don't have, this is the Chinese communist official, we don't have any doubt about that. Then they went out and they studied what was going on in areas in China. And they said, studies by Chinese sociologists reveal that in rural areas where traveling evangelists, missionaries, introduced the Christian faith, opium addiction goes down, crime drops, and Christian families grow wealthier than all of their neighbors. You are the stewards of the hope of the world. You don't go to church. You are the church. The Bible says, Christ in you, the hope of the world. Let's pray. Father, forgive us as a people where we have contributed to a reputation of hypocrisy. Forgive us for when we have made the gospel about behavior and about works. Forgive us for we're in our own lives, we're so deep, deeply steeped in sin, that is no laughing matter. And Lord, in that spirit of repentance and coming to you, would you come again to this place, to this church, to these people? Would you come powerfully? Would you make us bold, Lord, so that we would be witnesses, that you would, we would have the testimony of Peter that, you know what, at the end of the day, here's what I'm convinced of, Jesus is who he said he is. And would you work in powerful and miraculous ways so that we could proclaim that witness to Chester and Mendham and Long Valley and the 92,962 people that need what the Chinese said they needed, the church, Jesus and his people. Amen.